Hello, and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Jamie Schaffer. She's a licensed clinical social worker, health coach, and adolescent specialist at the Mind Body Therapy Center. She provides customized, developmentally appropriate services to her youngest clients using a combination of therapies informed through a lens of chronic pain. Welcome. Um, thank you, Tom. Um, I'd like to welcome um, Jamie um, Schaffer back to the podcast. She was on last week, and she is a licensed clinical social worker. She's a health coach and adolescent specialist at the Mind Body Therapy Center. She's trained in brain reprocessing therapy, emotional awareness and expression therapy, as well as inter- intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy. And if you'd like to know what each one of those are, they're very distinct but linked processes. So we talked about, some, talked about those in the first podcast, but she pulls for a breadth of training and clinic experience to tailor and provide for her youngest clients developmentally appropriate services through a chronic pain-informed lens. So on our first podcast, I was very interested in the resources she uses, which I happen to think all three of those are quite effective. And then we didn't quite get into the adolescence as much as I would have liked to. So we did discuss that adolescent brains and young, young brains are different than adult brains. It's a different process. So what I'd like to talk about more in this podcast, Jamie, is just how you approach these kids as far as developing a relationship. They don't necessarily trust adults very much. And they don't, their brains think differently. They're more concrete than abstract, even though they are very, very smart. And just some of those exact services that you offer and some stories. So anyways, we'll, we're working to more what you do on this podcast. So I'm going to pretend we already covered the adult stuff and how, what your tools are. So I'd like to focus on the um, age group that you work with. So just briefly, you work in nonprofits with kids, right? Uh, with adolescents for many okay and then how did you decide working with them that you should go into the mind body world so i was always really interested in non-pharmacological interventions for anxiety and chronic pain and i was very curious about it i started educating myself and i wanted to make the shift to private practice and when i saw that daniel lyman was starting his own practice I applied for a position and that's that's how I made the shift. Um, I've been interested in chronic pain for a while. My sister had a failed back surgery. I struggled with my own mind-body symptoms in, in grad school. And so it was this topic of interest that was on my mind for many, many years. And, and how long have you been doing the mind-body work with adolescents? Yeah, so I've been doing mind body work with adolescents for several years now. And then with your own journey, we'll go into that in detail today. So I will say that people have gone through the journey themselves. You can't help but want to spread the word because you're in a very dark hole that I call the abyss and just seem any way out of it. And you came out. So it's hard not to help other people with the same tools. And the people I work with, as they come out of the hole and truly heal, the comment I hear over and over and over again, that it was disturbingly simple. In other words, Mm -hmm. this is not hard work. It's not that hard. We should have been taught these tools probably in elementary school, 
about how to regulate your body and calm down and just live a life that's constructive. So not really taught those life skills. So can you start with just the example of a story of somebody who came to you that um, did well? Yeah. Oh, um, so that's fine. It, no, so I, this is a client that I worked with for, for a while and, and had actually another practitioner who, who terminated with them. And so I think it might have given other clinicians pause, but it just made me very intrigued into, into this adolescence case. And so I, I had a consult with the mom. I had a consult with the adolescent. And I really, really like this, this adolescent that I worked with. And there was a lot of neural circuit dizziness and this client would avoid going outside for weeks on end. And so one of the things I love about this kind of work that we have the opportunity to do is we can actually make it fun. And one of, one of my favorite sessions with this client was, um, leaning into values-based activities. I'm sorry, um, leaning into what leaning now? Values-based activities. I think that's really the sweet spot with exposure work. What, what did you used to value? What do you value? When you think about this activity, what, you know, does it put a smile on your face? And so this specific client, I'm going to change some details just out of privacy um, <laughs> purposes, confidentiality. And this client used to really love to go outside. And this client also really, really loved zombie apocalypse movies. Okay. And so one day we, we got this idea, we were kind of collaboratively developing exposure work and we decided we were gonna go outside together and we we're gonna fight a zombie apocalypse. And I don't know any other job where I could get away with doing this in session, right? But it was, it was this moment of empowerment and my client didn't have symptoms as, as she was outside. And, you know, she felt like she saved humankind from zombies. So we can get creative. We can be playful with this kind of work. And where I often have the most fun is when we get really creative and we bring a lot of fun and levity into the exposure work. It doesn't have to be really serious and prescriptive and me being one other person who tells them what they have to do and how they have to do it and what time of day they need to do it. And um, so I like the creativity that can come in to play with this work. And this client's doing really well. There was a lot of avoidance around going outside, around driving, around looking at screens. This client's doing all of those things now. She, so she's back to almost normal activities now. <clears throat> right. Yeah. And again, this is beyond this podcast today, but the bottom line is when you feel safe, your body chemistry changes dramatically and people heal. And as you mentioned, the first podcast, my wife did workshops based around um, structure, education, but also the cup song, dancing kitties, um, all sorts of stuff. And within 24 hours after people started to laugh, their pain started to resolve. About 80% of people went to pain-free in the workshop. Some people after 20 or 30 years of pain, 
Within five days, they went to pain free. Now, when they went back home to their triggers, of course, the pain came back, except <clears throat> their brain tasted something different. <clears throat> so um, I know you have these different techniques, but I'm guessing just talking to you that um, it's probably more the interaction with you, creativity, feeling safe is probably what's the most powerful part of this thing. Yeah, and and that's such an important point, right? We wouldn't go into exposure work in the first session. First, I have to establish a rapport. Right. So many of my clients have come to me after seeing a lot of practitioners. I have one client that came to me after seeing 46 different practitioners. Wow. So I have to establish trust and rapport before asking a client to engage in something like exposure work. I have to create safety. Right. Right. <clears throat> yeah. I What happened, I came up from these workshops, very, very excited because, you know, we have pain clinics that are effective, but, you know, there's sort of CBT and vocational training and exercise, a lot of things to do, but it's a perfect setting to actually pull in play. But yeah. see, play is not part of the medical profession vernacular, Right. Absolutely. Well, and the problem is in medicine, we think, okay, well, stress is psychological and you're just a wimp. Honestly, is what we think. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. So <laughs> doctors, especially surgeons, label their patients as a bit of a problem. So if we can't see a structural problem, we assume it's one of these medically unexplained symptoms, MUS, which you mentioned earlier. But if you look at the physiology of the body, is sustained exposure to stress, i.e. threat physiology, how the body functions, that breaks the body down. So every symptom is actually completely explainable by the body's physiology. So the term should be really medically explained symptoms. And we give somebody a diagnosis of MUS, it means, okay, we know you hurt, we can't find anything wrong, do the best you can do. Well, it takes away hope. Yes. It turns out that hope is actually anti-inflammatory. So in medicine, I, I won't rant too much today. I mean, we're really actively <clears throat> hurting people in medicine right now, just even with the belief systems. Mm -hmm. So let's just touch on the work you did initially. So you have an adolescent in front of you who's pretty much cynical in general. How do you, you said you go through a screening process. My challenge, even with adults, has been finding ways to get people to engage in the healing process because once they engage, they do heal very consistently. But it's getting people interested enough to engage. And adolescents have a lot of, I guess, I would say valid guarding against adult interventions and adult suggestions. You said you help people feel safe so they feel safe opening up. How do you do that? I need yeah. to learn. And that really varies from client to client depending upon what the defenses are, right? And so... I'm not going to get into all of the clinical work the first session necessarily and lean into exposures. First, I'm just gonna take a history and get to know the client and get a sense of what's coming up in session, what symptoms are coming up in session, what, what defenses are coming up in session. And, um, do I take this work very seriously? Yes. Do I, do I have a lot of training? Yes. Do they care about that? No. Like, right. They just don't want me to be someone else to disappoint them. Or to tell them what to do. Exactly. And so 
healing in my mind has to be a collaborative process because otherwise I'm, I'm this therapist that knows better than someone's own individual experience. And that's right. dangerous. Right. Well, that's basically one of the core values of the process I can learn through my own painful experience in many, many patients is that there's three parts of learning, of healing. One is awareness, understanding the problem, your situation. The second part is understanding all the variables affecting you, sleep, stress, um, exercise, diet, et cetera. But it's like finding a forest fire. You have to deal with all issues at the same time. It doesn't happen tomorrow, but you generally have to treat the whole person. But the final part, which is the most critical part, is by definition, the person has to take control. Hmm. So I'm curious, you said you screen patients before you see that they're um, ready to take on both parents and the children. What constitute, well, I'm going to ask two questions at the same time. When you're screening, what sort of determines, I realize it's not an exact science, but what determines whether you think this person is going to respond to your interventions or probably not a candidate? How do you decide that? Yeah, so I, in the consults, actually talk about some of the latest research around chronic pain or neural circuit dizziness, just to gauge, is this something that the client is receptive to? And oftentimes I'll, I'll find myself saying, especially with my, my prospective clients that have come in, having seen so many different practitioners, practitioners, I'll say, you know, the, the bad news is, is that everything you've tried hasn't worked. And the good news is everything you've tried hasn't worked. So collaboratively can we try to figure out what's going on together i like that <clears throat> right yeah i mean we also know on a study out of texas the university of austin why they, there's a research paper dr danzer that showed there's four things actually lower inflammatory markers in the lab one of them is hope and optimism once is a sense of community other people one is a positive can-do attitude positive effect the final one is a sense of control and so once there's, but you can't solve the problem and get control of it unless you understand the problem. So with your pain reprocessing therapy, it sounds like you're educating them and help them understand that this pain they're feeling actually isn't dangerous, that it's okay. Then again, what you're doing, it changes the body's chemistry into safety, which actually slows down nerve conduction. You know, the brain goes from inflammatory to anti-inflammatory. So as everything calms down, the symptoms really do resolve. But I like to, I'm going to um, put out a concept that you mentioned, but I want to frame it in a little bit different words. Mm -hmm. The hardest paradigm I see with dealing with, with by the way, chronic disease. I, I've come off of chronic pain in a big way. It turns out that anxiety, depression, OCD, bipolar, schizophrenia are, are all inflammatory metabolic disorders. Same thing with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, um, cancer, osteoporosis, autoimmune disorders, all chronic disease is, mal is a malfunction at the mitochondria, which is little organelles in the cells and the DNA level. It goes right to the very core problem. So it's more about chronic disease than it is about chronic pain. Turned out the mental pain is a much bigger problem than the physical pain. Because we have an automatic protection from physical pain, we have no protection from mental pain. And the mental pain is so well poorly tolerated that the body actually chooses physical symptoms as opposed to dealing with mental pain. Exactly. They yeah. came out of Arizona. So the hardest part to, to get rid of, to rid of is that the way the body heals is with neuroplasticity and creativity. Mm -hmm. so you're essentially creating a new brain, 
you're rebuilding your brain, not fixing your brain. And as one of my mitochondrial genius friends pointed out, he said, you can't rebuild a burned out house with the same timbers that were burned out. You, you had to put in new timbers. So that's where trauma therapy, we go back in and fix the past, analyze the past, never works because your, your attention's on the problem. So it's neuroplasticity, which is incredibly powerful. You literally can create any brain you want. And so you separate and move forward. So I'm excited about what you're pointing out with your, that's why I'm, I'm, I know, and I'm not have to guess at this, that you have lots of successes because these kids have control. And guess what? I can create my own future. I don't have to listen to anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lots around choice and agency in session, especially around exposure work. Even, even before that, right? A teenager deciding if they even want to work with me. Right. Right. So how can you, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they just tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I love, I love the bluntness of it all. Right. So I'm guessing at that point, there's a, there's not much you can do. So out of the consults where that I have with teens, I want to say around 90% of them become clients. There are some times where I actually feel like clinically it wouldn't be appropriate and it would be more appropriate for the, the child to see someone in person. There are certain instances where that would be more clinically appropriate. Well, I'm extremely impressed that you have, of, of, not, of the people you screen, 90% of them eventually become clients. And, and so I think that that also speaks to, because working with a younger population, and, and I know we've talked about family systems and are family systems enforcing this? Are they not enforcing it? Like what, what's in play? There's also this consideration when, when children are younger, their parents are aware enough to say, hey, something's going on. Right. Things going on that, that we want to get some help. And so there's, there is that motivation, whether it's to your point of, of these really kind of distressing conversations that you've had with, with parents around, well, my kid's the problem and they're broken and they need to be fixed. Well, no, that's not the case. And we'll right. address that, right? right. Um, but there's there's a level of awareness that's happening happening within the family that there is a challenge that's coming up and, and they're seeking some sort of support for it. Do you... So there's a little bit of a selection process because it sounds like you have parents who are, are aware enough to say, look, this solve this relatively early as opposed to kids are totally out of control and high level drugs. So it sounds like you have a bit of, there's certain, sounds like there's a bit of a window mm -hmm. there is still doable to actually change the trajectory. Because uh, I'm guessing with your what you just said, you're probably not dealing with teens on heroin at this point. There's, there's sort yeah. of a horror. Yeah, and that's a really, really fair point, right? This is this is about chronic illness, right. and I am not an addiction therapist, and right. so I I think that it's really, really important that as as practitioners we be very intentional about our training and we stay within our scope. Right. Yeah. No, I'm impressed because I mean. I think you and I both feel the same way that if we get that 
child or person point your discussion at your entry point, if without intervention, a lot of those do end up in heroin and different drugs by the time they're in their 20s. And so again, that mental pain is brutal and you have lots of calming tools, lots of safety producing tools. And um, so is your practice almost exclusively adolescents and children at this point? Yeah, I do work with adults too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you always pull the family in pretty much as far as the overall treatment plan? If it feels clinically indicated, I will. Um, I I really want to get a sense of the the family system from from the child's perspective first, and I want to assess for would it feel safe to to have these conversations with with a parent, right? Because I'm a therapist, I'm a health coach, I'm not a mediator. So really getting a sense, right? Of, That's a big difference there. Of, yeah, if if my client feels safe doing that, and I'm guessing. It must be rather interesting hearing the client's perspective and then also hearing the parent's perspective. I'm guessing they're quite divergent. They can be quite divergent. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. So anyway, um, I think we have to wind up here, which I could talk to you for a long time, but how many, if a given person sees you, is it like, Four visits, six visits, 50 visits, two years, three months. I mean, what's your general flavor? Do you sort of just go how it flows? Yeah, yeah. So it really depends upon the presenting issues. I've had clients that I've seen for two sessions and they feel better. I have clients that I've seen for a year plus. Yeah, people keep asking me the question, well, how long does it take for my pain to go away? And it's actually the wrong question. Yes. Thank you for addressing that. Well, the question really is, how long will it take me to learn the skills I need to process stress? Yeah. I, I need to learn life skills to process my stress, to minimize my time in fight or flight, and minimize, maximize my time in safety. They're both part of life. And so it's a matter of development. So the, to me, the focus is on the skills. And I always say it tongue in cheek, but I'm serious that there's no goal to my process or any of these, there's no goal. The goal is to connect to, connect to the day you're in, good or bad, not always good. That's it. And if you start monitoring your pain, of course, the pain runs the show. Yeah. And so it's very, very paradoxical about letting go. So, was, so you see individual clients and that can be from a few visits to quite a while. And I'm not going to ask you the question, how long does it take to get better? Because that's really is not the right question. It's just not a good question. Um, and then you say you do you do group sessions also? Yeah, I developed a curriculum that's research informed. That's for 10 to 12 year olds. That's starting. Nice. At, yeah, so I'm really excited about that. And it's, it's going to be online to make it more accessible. Yeah, that's, I mean, these kids are really smart. So smart. I, I remember one time when my son was 12, um, I sort of sat back and just did sort of a meditation on what I was like when I was 13. And you don't miss much at that age. You don't miss anything. And adults, I think, tend to minimize what kids know and don't know. And they know everything. <laughs> I mean, so observant. Yeah, they don't miss anything. And so, no, it's wonderful. So can you tell us how to access your services? 
Absolutely. So someone that's interested in accessing my services can email me at jamie at mindbodytherapycenter.org. There's also a link on the Mind Body Therapy Center website for the youth group that's starting in March. Okay. And you do pretty much exclusively online work? Yes. Okay. Are there, are there people in your center that do in-person work? Or is it pretty much an, an online group? Yeah. So Daniel Gaines actually does hiking sessions. Does what sessions? Hiking sessions in okay. Los Angeles. Yeah. Okay. Nice. And all of the clinicians I work with are superb. You've done an incredible job bringing awareness to OCD and chronic illness. And we have really extraordinary clinicians that work with OCD and chronic illness simultaneously. Absolutely. So all of these, if, if they weren't my colleagues, honestly, I would see any single one of them for individual therapy. Nice. Excellent. Well, Jamie, thank you very, very much. Um, you're doing excellent work and, you know, it's yeah. all evolving. I think all of us will be getting better at how to access things better, make it more clear to people. I also think that there's enough of this work being done in different centers that eventually is going to pervade the public consciousness much more than the structural basis for pain. So the body is alive, it functions, and it's malfunction that causes symptoms, not a bone spur. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me. I'd like to thank our guest, Jamie Schaffer, for being on the show today and explaining the approach she uses to help her clients heal. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.